0: thought how many things that we say to one another make zero sense I think about this often I like words uh, we say things from time to time and, and I don't know if anyone's ever thought you know what this this actually doesn't say what you're thinking it says like for example um, you know someone will say something like I could care less about that which implies you care somewhat, or you care a lot because you could be less than what you care, which is the opposite of what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, I couldn't care less, but no one says that. We say, I could care less. And I always think, could you? Could you care less? (laughs) Or like when when, uh, you're looking for something, it's lost, and then you find it. And someone, someone sweet always says, well, it's always the last place you check. (laughs) You know why? Because you stop looking for it when you find it, right? Why would you keep, it? it doesn't make any sense. Or People come up to you like, hey, can I ask you a question? You just did. You just have, you want two questions? Because you asked me for one question, and you, I don't understand. It. Maybe it's just me, and I have issues, and I'll work through it. But nonetheless, a lot of the things that we say don't make much sense. And that's maybe okay, and we can laugh about it and go, that's just how we talk. Uh, but here's the deal. When, when God doesn't make sense to you, it's a problem. When you look at God, you look at Jesus, you're like, I don't see it. I don't know what he's like. I don't really understand it. Or you read the Bible and it doesn't make sense. Uh, that, that's a problem. And so we're in this series called Pixelated. We're looking at God. We're going, how do we better see Jesus? How do we better understand him? And so we've been looking at Old Testament stories and stories that you may read and go, I'm not sure what to do with that. And, and then we're actually showing how Jesus used these stories and, and how they help us to make sense out of who he is. And, and that's where we've been. And you go, well, why, why are you doing that? Well, because that's how Jesus read the Old Testament. And we get this in John chapter five, verse 39 and 40. And this has been the, the theme passage of this series. Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life a bold claim we've been looking at each week. Basically two things. Number one, that all scripture points to him, which is a different way to read it for a lot of us. And number two, that you're not going to find your life in the Bible. You're going to find your life in the person the Bible points to, which is Jesus. And so we're going to Jesus, using the Bible to point us to Jesus and walk away with, with a better view of him than hopefully we had before. And so if you've got your journals, we're going to be in week three. I encourage you to get those out. And, and again, the reason we do these journals is uh, each week of the series, you'll see a spot for notes. We want to encourage you to bring your journals with you every week, write down your notes, and that this is something you could reference that you keep. And you can go back and go, hey, what was I learning there? What was God teaching me during that season or during that series? Now, if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you do. I'm going to ask a lot of you today. I'm going to ask you to turn to two passages. I normally only do one, and I I understand if you're like, whoa, whoa, that's not the agreement. But I'm going to ask, if you would... Exodus 12 and Luke 22. Uh, So you got Old Testament, New Testament. I wanna show you a passage in each of these. If that's just absurd to you, you're like, there's no way, then just pick Exodus 12. We'll start there. Maybe you'll get a second wind and you'll get to Luke 22 with us as we go. Uh, If you got a physical Bible, just get your spot you know, in each and put a a pen or a bookmark in each and you'll be ready. If you got a Bible app on a phone or device, uh, it's pretty easy to scroll. So I encourage you, get your spot there. I want you to read this for yourself. Today we're looking at a story in Exodus 12 uh, that's known as the Passover. Uh, and this is where, where ex, in Exodus you have Moses and you have Pharaoh. And they're kind of battling it out over the, the Israelites, over the Lord's people. Now let me give you a little bit of setup to this story because you may not be familiar with what was going on at the time. So the Israelites are living within Egypt, but they're not Egyptians. They're not welcomed in as, as citizens of Egypt. They're, they're treated as slaves. And yet there's a lot of them there. And, and you can get to how, how how'd they get there. Well, that's the story of Joseph. If you're in Genesis, Joseph gets over there and then he's blessed by God and his descendants are blessed. And so you have a lot of Israelites. Uh, and, and so Pharaoh realizes he's got a problem. Because he's treating these Israelites as slaves. He's getting forced labor out of them. But he knows that their numbers are rising to the point where if they were to have an uprising, a rebellion, he'd have a problem. There's so many of them. And so Pharaoh, who is the most powerful person alive on the planet at this point, he leads an empire. He's the dominant world power. He decides, I've got to solve this problem. And he decides to solve it in one of the most barbaric, sadistic ways possible. And and so I want to read this for you. you, Again, you may have heard this story and you're like, yeah, I'm familiar with it. But I just want us to experience what this story feels like and and try to imagine it from their point of view. Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Here's the setup for our story today. It says, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy, every Israelite boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Imagine this scene. Imagine this is told to you and to your family and to your friends. Hey, if you have a girl, great, she gets to live. If not, you throw that baby into the Nile. And then all the boys are going to die. I mean, just imagine the emotion, the, the heartbreak of that. And there's nothing you can do about it. And, and again, you know, if we've read this, we're like, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with it, but but just imagine being there. Imagine this is your family. Imagine what that. Feels like. And again, this is Pharaoh's solution to his problem. Hey, I'm going to take out all these future boys, and I can control the population, and, and you know it'll be much more, uh, much easier for me to manage. And this is the way he goes about doing it. Now, I want us to experience the setup for this because uh, you don't really understand the the Passover until you understand why this was all put into motion. And so I wanna show you a cartoon depiction of this. Uh, There's a movie called The Prince of Egypt that I wanna show you the way they portray it. Uh, And and again, this is a a kid's cartoon, uh, but just consider what this feels like as you imagine what this might be like. Check this out. Now, that's the way a children's cartoon depicts that scene. Imagine it in real life. Imagine the horrors of that as that was carried out, and imagine your response to that. Now, that comes from a movie called The Prince of Egypt. And I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. Uh, this is actually uh, a movie. I watched this on my first date with my wife. When we were in high school, we were high school sweethearts. Uh, I decided I want to set the tone really early on that I was being super spiritual. So, I'll, you know, I'll watch this. And uh, so I have a very fond memory of this movie. Because, again, uh, and I watched it back in high school on my first date with my wife. And it worked. Just saying. So, guys, uh, you may want to try it. <clears throat> uh, but... A number of years later, I was home one morning with our kids and I don't remember where Michelle was, but I was by myself and and I saw this was on Netflix. And I thought, hey, that'll be fun. Let's watch it together. You know, my kids and I. And so I, you know, we get the popcorn out, we get it ready. I'm like, hey guys, we're gonna watch the Prince of Egypt. And they're like, oh, what's that about, Dad? And I'm like, it's a movie about Moses. You guys remember Moses? So I'm like, yeah. And so I'm like, awesome. Let's watch this movie. It'll be great. So we're all together. We're all snuggling on the couch. It's gonna be great. Got our popcorn. Got our blankets. Ready to roll. We start watching this movie. And I, again, I just have such fond memories of it. Well, we get to the scene that I just showed you, where it depicts, you know, Pharaoh's uh, solution to his problem. And my daughter's sitting next to me and she begins to cry. But she begins crying, not like she's ever cried before. It's like, you know, normally when, when my kids cry, it's that little, you know, kind of selfish cry of someone took my toy, um, but it's not that kind of a cry. This is like an adult empathetic cry. And, and she gets louder and louder. And she starts crying in a way I have never seen her cry before. And so I'm looking at her and I, I, I'm trying to make sense out of what's, what's going on to her. And I said, Adeline, what's, what's up? And she says something to me that I'll I'll just never forget. And, you know, she's sobbing, and so she's trying to get these words out through tears. She goes, Daddy, what? And she goes, what are they doing to the babies? And I realized for the first time what this looks like from her point of view. See, I have read this story so many times. I have watched this movie so many times. It does not have that effect on me. But here is my little daughter who is experiencing all of the horrors of this scene and is rightly reacting to it, is rightly responding to this scene. And so I'm looking at it and I'm going, oh no, I got a problem here. Like this, this is bad. And again, I've never seen her. I mean, she's shaking. She's so overwhelmed by this. I've never seen this happen. And and so I'm trying to figure out what do you say in this situation? How do you calm down your daughter, you know, as a dad? And so I say, Adeline hold on. I said, Moses is going to make it better. You know, God's going to use Moses. It's going to get better. Okay, dad. You know, so she's like, I'm like, okay, come on, Moses. Like, I need you to kick us into gear here. So we keep watching and, you know, she's calming down a little bit, but she's still, you know, having a hard time breathing. Then she says to me, daddy. Yeah. When does Moses bring the babies back? Oh Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, well, honey, um, I don't, and I'm trying to think, of, and then I start fast forward, okay, what else is in this movie? And I'm like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. There's more deaths to come. And so I'm like, you know what, guys, I got an idea. Let's put something else on. So no joke, I put on Handy Manny <laughs> because he doesn't kill anyone. And so I thought that was a safer bet. So we switch, and I'm going, I can't even show this to my kids because the scene is too horrific. And again, I would suggest that Adeline's reaction is the reaction we should have when we read this story. When we understand the heartbreak of what's going on. And these Israelites begin to cry out to God. They are weeping. God, Pharaoh is literally killing our children. Please do something. And so he raises up Moses. And Moses is the, the little, you know, baby in the basket, if you're understanding that scene. And, and he's looking at, you know, kind of where he came from and he's understanding it. And Moses grows up and he's not in Egypt anymore. God sends him back from the wilderness and says, Moses, you're the guy that's going to lead my people out. You're, you're going you're gonna to be my, my response to the, them crying out in despair. And so Moses comes, if you know the story, this is all in, in you know, Genesis and Exodus, you can get all this whole story. Uh, and, and Moses goes, he goes, all right, we're going to do, uh, there's going to be plagues, 10 of them. And plagues against Pharaoh and against Egypt. And as we read the story today, as Americans, you might read it and go, there's a bunch of weird plagues. Like, what's up with the frogs and the locusts? And I mean, like, I don't understand it. Here's what you have to understand. All of those plagues, each one was a defiance to the gods of Egypt. So the Egyptian gods, they had a God for everything. So each of these plagues is the biblical God picking on all the gods of Egypt, going, look, you're not as powerful as you think you are. And so it is God asserting himself over and against all the other gods of of Egypt. And so they're very intentional. Then he gets to the 10th plague, and God's like, all right, this is the plague that's gonna happen. It's a plague of the firstborn, that God is gonna gonna kill the firstborn. And, And so Moses instructed, hey, you Israelites, For this not to affect you, you have to go kill a a lamb or, or, you know, a sheep or a goat. You have to take that blood, smear over your doorpost, and that way you'll be exempt from it when when this happens. And so that's what they're instructed to do. Now, I want to show you, if you're in Exodus 12 uh, with me, I want to show you the way God explains this, and then we're going to process through this story together. Exodus 12, verse 12. This is God speaking. On that same night... I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the idea of Passover. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance." And so this plague is going to target the very power structure of Egypt, because it's going to go after the firstborn. Now, in that culture, as in many cultures, the firstborn had a disproportionate amount of, of rights, of inheritance, of blessing. Uh, the firstborn, you know, children are, are you know, they had, they had it really good compared to their siblings. So for the first time in history, all the middle children were like, yes, finally glad, I'm not my older brother, you know, for like the first time ever. Uh, but it's hard to just imagine how intense this would have been. So let's play a little game together. If you were the firstborn in your family, I want you to stand up. Okay, just go ahead and stand up, all the firstborn. Okay, I want you to look around. Here, here are the firstborns among us. Now everybody knows that firstborns are smarter, better looking, <laughs> more athletic, right? I'm a firstborn as well. Uh, you know, we, we get that, case. Okay, so look around. Now here's the deal, imagine all of us are dead. We don't wake up tomorrow. That's, that's how this plays out. Now begin to imagine the ripple effects of that, okay? Of, of all these families, all these networks are now, you know, forever changed. Thank you, guys. You can sit down. Sorry I had to kill you for the illustration, but I <laughs> appreciate you being a good support about it. Now, we often envision that this is babies, okay? It's just, oh, it's just happening to babies. It's not just babies. It is all the firstborn of people and of their animals, which is their livelihood as well. Here's how Exodus chapter 12, verse 30 says it. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all of the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead." Now imagine this, imagine waking up in the middle of the night. And again, this could be one or both of your parents, you know, the, the parents of a family, it could be the kid. I mean, you, you have significant death happening all throughout Egypt. Now, if I'm honest with you and I read this story, God looks pixelated to me because as I look at this, it looks like God's response to Pharaoh is just like Pharaoh's response, but just a little bit worse. Like Pharaoh just killed the boys. God is going to kill all the firstborn. I mean, I look at this, I'm going, God, you, you couldn't have had a better solution to this? Because I, I don't know how to make this look like Jesus. This doesn't look like Jesus to me. It, it, looks, it looks, you know, kind of horrific. If you imagine, hey, Pharaoh killed, kills a bunch of people, then God responds, he kills a bunch of people. You're going, this is how God works? And you might have that same tension going, oh, man, this... This is hard to deal with. Here's what's interesting. If you look deeper into the story, you look carefully, you see that there are other ways of understanding this, other ways of seeing what's going on. So we we just read what God said. Here's what I'm gonna do. And, And in a few verses, Moses is gonna clarify it. Moses is gonna explain. Here's how God is gonna do it. And I want you to notice the detail that Moses adds to the story. Exodus 12, verse 23. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Now, you obviously notice there's an additional person in the equation now. Well, who is the destroyer? So now Moses says, yeah, yeah, God's going to cause it, but God's not the one doing it. It's going to be the destroyer, and, and, and God is going to control where the destroyer has, you know, has access to. If you have blood, he won't permit the destroyer. And you may go, well, that's just a weird detail. You know, I don't know if we can put much into that. Well, you go to the New Testament and go, how did the New Testament writers use this imagery? And you see the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 28, the author of Hebrews says it like this. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. So again, in the New Testament, as they look back on this story, they don't attribute this to God anymore. They attribute it to the destroyer is doing this. You may be going, well, who on earth is the destroyer? Why is, you know, why is this being referenced? Okay, well, now you look elsewhere in scripture go, where else do we see reference to the destroyer? Do, do we see anything like that? There's two passages that I think are very similar to this wording. Here's the first one, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, to destroy. Same image here as we're seeing, okay? So Peter goes, well, hey, you know who the destroyer is? You know who, who does that? The devil does that. The devil prowls around like a lion looking to destroy someone, right? If you go to the book of Revelation, chapter nine, says it like this. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon. That is destroyer. There literally is a demon named the destroyer. Okay, So again, you start to put this together, you're going, okay, so there's a separate entity that the New Testament writers say represents evil, not God, that, that God is controlling or God is doing something with. Now again, you might be going, okay, well, how does all of this make sense? Here's the way Dr. Gregory Boyd sums all this up. I think it makes it uh, easy for us to wrap our minds around. The destroyer, was an agent that God had to restrain, not an agent God meticulously controlled or that He commanded to do evil. So, as He's looking at all these times, He's going, Look, here's how you understand God's relationship with the destroyer that God rest- restrains the destroyer, and, and, and sometimes He doesn't. And so, he's, he's not sending the destroyer out, He's not controlling, He's not motivating the destroyer, He's just keeping it at bay. Here's how I would understand this, and I think this is the easiest way the destroyer or evil is like gravity. It is this constant force that if it has its way with you, will pull you down, will drag you down. Jesus in his goodness holds you up. He sustains all things. That's the way the Testament writers describe him. Jesus sustains all things, right? So it is literally as if you are being held in his hands. So every day you don't die, you should thank Jesus because he has withheld you. He has held you up because gravity would try to pull you down. And we don't think to do that. No, I just had another day. No, you should literally be grateful. Hey, thank you for sustaining me another day. Thank you for holding me up against the weight of gravity of evil another day. But the wrath of God is when God removes himself, lets you be, and allows evil to do its work. It's not God causing it or God doing it. It's God removing his goodness from your life. And we've talked about that elsewhere. And so again, God's wrath upon Egypt is God says, all right, I'm not going to sustain you anymore, Pharaoh. I'm not going to withhold you. I'm not going to keep you. Uh, I'm going to allow evil to run its course against you. And all of a sudden the destroyer comes in and he does all this. And so again, it's a different way of understanding that. But here's the point. Every person in Egypt that night, regardless of whether you're an Israelite or an Egyptian, would have to answer one question. What have you done with the blood? Simple question. What have you done with the blood? Because that is the defining thing as to whether or not this plague affected your house. If you disregarded it, you didn't do anything, then you would have lost all the firstborns in your family. If you decide, hey, I'm going to kill a sheep or you know goat, and I'm going to put it above my doorpost, then all of a sudden you would not experience this plague. And so the question simply is, what have you done with the blood? Now, you have this, this salvation uh, you know, aspect uh, represented by blood. And, and this is a, a bit weird because there's no practical benefits. Oh, there's medicinal purposes. No, it's only because this is what God said to do. Put the blood on the door and that'll save you. Uh, There's no other reason why you would do this other than what God has instructed. And so God here is connecting blood with salvation. Now, if it was up to me and I was God, I would not connect salvation with blood in any way, shape, or form. That's because I hate blood. I get very squeamish and I can't stomach it. I can't see people, you know, I I just can't handle anything. I can't even watch myself get a shot. I, you know, I, I can pass out. If I have to give blood, I often pass out. Like that's how much, it's just anxiety, it's not good. It's so bad, I kid you not. When our, our first child was born, when Gavin was born, we're in the hospital and you know, I, I don't know what to expect, but I get there and I don't like the hospitals, I don't like the needles, I don't like all the things that are going you know, on with my wife. And you know, we're in there for a while, by the, the time the doctor comes to deliver Gavin, she looks at Michelle and she goes, wow, Michelle, you look great. She looks at me and she goes, what's wrong with Jeremy kid you not, <laughs> Michelle's doctor prescribed me medication when she was in labor. <laughs> I'm that bad at all of this, like I just can't handle it. And so if it's me and God's like, hey, I take some blood, r- I, I wouldn't be a part of Passover. I'd be passing out. I'd be on the ground going, Michelle, you do it. I can't, I can't do this. I just, I would not be able to do it. But this is what God says. You've got to kill an animal. You're going to take that blood. You're going to smear the blood all over your house. Which, again, is kind of a weird image. But that's the image that God goes with. Why? There's a huge lesson they would have learned in this that becomes pivotal for the identity of the Israelites from this point on. The blood reminds us that we cannot save ourselves a huge, huge lesson that they learned that night. We can do nothing to deliver ourselves from Pharaoh. We cannot, you know, muster an army. We cannot figure out a strategy. There is nothing we can do. The blood is that reminder. Hey, we're not gonna save ourselves. God's gonna do it. And this is the mark that we decide. We choose him, not us, not our strategy. And it's the same for us today. Now you might go, well, that's a little abstract. I'm not sure what to do with that. Let me, let me personalize it for you. You... Are not the solution to your problems it's my it's my personal paraphrase for you you're not the solution well what do you what do you mean i can solve my problems i'm solving them right now just give me enough time and i'll have all these problems figured out it's a very american idea right i now just just give me some time check back in with me i will have my problem solved i'll get right with god i'll figure all these things out i will solve it No, what you need to learn from the story scripturally, and and I would say if you want to follow God, uh, God needs you to understand you are not the solution to your problems. And until you realize this, you're never going to fully see Jesus because you don't think you need him, right? If you can solve your problems, why do you need God? Why do you need Jesus? But the moment you realize this is beyond me, this is outside of me, I, I can't do it. Anybody going, Jeremy, you're, you know, That offends me you tell me I can't do that. Well, here's what I would say. If you're a little bit offended and your ego is hurt, uh, I remember something that Jonathan Martin once said. He said, whatever is bad for the ego is good for the soul. So I'm doing some soul care on you if you're a little offended right now, and I'm okay with that, all right? Here's what you have to realize. Every generation passed this on. Hey, here's what God did for us. Here's the blood. Here's this whole story. It wasn't just the people who were alive at the time. They passed it on to their kids, to their grandkids, on and on and on, because God told them to do this. We already read this, but let me point it out again. Exodus 12, 14. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You're going to celebrate this day for generations to come. Tell everyone after you what has happened. They estimate the Exodus may have happened around 1446 uh, B.C. Uh, so by the time you get to the New Testament, this could have been about 1,500 years of this being celebrated. Okay? That's a long time to celebrate a tradition, they, they celebrate it even today. You can fast forward 2,000 more years. Uh, you can still have Jews who celebrate Passover. It's the same thing that we read about in, in this text. So by the time you get to Jesus, 1,500 years, how, You know that's generation after generation after generation. That is built into the DNA. This is who we are as a people. We are a people who have been saved by the blood on our house. And that is how God delivered us. That is how God solves problems. Then you get to the New Testament. Now, if you're with me in Luke chapter 22, I wanna show you what Jesus does with the story. Now, what you may not realize is that Jesus was a Jew. And as a Jew, he celebrated Passover every year because that's what you would have done. And so Jesus again gets together with his disciples right before he's out to go to the cross. He's like, hey, let's celebrate Passover together uh, because it's that time and, and they would have done it year after year together, right? And this is being passed on Generations is passed on to Jesus. So here's how Jesus celebrates the Passover. 1,500 years later, Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus is saying, look, this one is going to be different. I have been looking forward to this Passover. And we're about to find out why. But, but he's setting up a tone of, hey, this one's going to be extra special. I've been looking forward to this one. They're going, okay, why? Verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying this, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Now at this point, everyone would be gone, I'm sorry, what? Uh, Jesus, that's not the script. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced Passover. I, I've, I've celebrated Passover with the Jewish family before. That's not in there. There's nothing about Jesus in the Passover, right? It's not. It's not what Passover is for. It's about Moses and you know, in Egypt and the Israelites and what God did there. And here Jesus says, "Hey, take these elements." Are going? Yeah, yeah. We remember this. And he goes, "Yeah, remember me." Um, no, no, Jesus. That's 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 not what Passover is about. And then he doubles down. Verse twenty. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you." Jesus, like, I don't know that. Did you get confused? Like, did you forget what Passover is about? Like, you've been doing it your whole life. Did you forget it's not about your blood? It's about the blood of the goats and the sheep that's over the door. Like, that's what we're celebrating. That blood, not your blood. And Jesus goes, No, no, no. It's about my blood. So, this particular version of Passover becomes known as the Last Supper. Uh, this is where we get the idea of communion from it's Jesus hijacking Passover. It wasn't like Jesus said, hey, let's get together. We're going to have communion every week. Like they didn't do communion the way we do it today. We do it because of what he did on Passover. How he took Passover, hijacked it, and said, this whole thing is about me. You can imagine all the Jews in the room going, I'm not sure we're supposed to do this. You know, like um, Jesus, it's, it's, not a, it's not about you. It's, it's about what God did in the Old Testament. Now, I don't know how to—, how to Bring this to life to, to give you the same reaction that his early followers would have had. Here's the closest analogy I come up with, and it's not a good analogy, but it's close I come up with. Imagine if we get to Christmas time, December 25th, and I say, hey guys, here's the deal. As a church community, and everybody, all your families, everybody, um, I don't want us to celebrate Christmas anymore. We're not gonna do anything with Christmas. From now on, December 25th, we're all gonna celebrate my birthday. Okay, it's not my actual birthday, but we're just gonna start celebrating it on December 25th. So everything you used to do, don't do that anymore. Now we're all celebrating my birthday. However that would sound to your ears is similar to what they're experiencing when they listen to Jesus. Like, Jesus, we've been doing this for 1,500 years. You're now gonna change it? You're gonna say this whole thing is about your body, that this food that we're we're eating and this drink that we have, this is all about you and what you're about to do? Like you can just imagine the reaction to all of this. But what we realize is that Jesus is reestablishing, he's redefining what salvation looks like. All they think of salvation in this, in this uh, time is a physical deliverance, right? That's what, that's what it was in the Exodus. They were living in Egypt. They needed physical liberation from the Egyptians, from Pharaoh. That is what the Israelites at this point of history and Jesus are expecting as well. They're living under Roman oppression. They have a Caesar. Hey, get that out of here. Release us from that. That's what we need. And Jesus is going, I'm not going to deliver you that way. I'm gonna deliver you a different way. And you begin to understand what he's doing. They're going, no, no, just deliver us the way that Moses did. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm doing something far greater than Moses. The problem is most of us, them included, don't often know what we need saving from. We think we just need saving from whatever the situation is that we're in. And we don't realize is how deep our sin goes, how much of a problem our sin is. We, we just don't, we don't tend to see it. We tend to minimize, ah, it's not that big of a deal. I just gotta figure this out and then I'll be fine. But, but your sin is, is a deeper problem than that. And you just can't solve it. You can't figure it out. Uh, let me give you an analogy. I was uh, at the beach in California one time with our, our family and we were, we were playing and uh, we noticed that there's some, something unique on the sand. So I'll show you. We have these little examples of little, little tar spots uh, that were all over the place. And they looked like rocks, uh, but they would like stick to you and they'd be really sticky. And, and so I, you know, later learned that this is from oil and the water and it dry up and all, whatever. But this is a little, little tar spot. Now, I didn't think anything uh, much of it until we got home that night. We got back to our, our rental house and, and so we're going to clean off. And, and I realized I've got a few of these on my feet and they're like sticking to me. So I'm like, oh, I'll just get the hose and I'll just wash them off. And so I'd go there and I'd start trying to wash it off. It's not going anywhere. So I'm like, all right, I'll just get my, you know, my fingers and I'll just scrape it off. And then I realized all I'm doing is transferring it from my foot to my hand and now I've got tar all over my hand, I, I can't figure out what to do. So then I'm like, all right, well, I'll, try to, I'll try to get a sponge or something. So I get the sponge, I'm literally scraping it off of my skin and it's transferring to the sponge and it took forever to do this. Then I look around and I realize my kids are covered in this stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is gonna be so long. We look at our shoes and if our shoes have it, we just throw them away. Cause we're like, look, it's not worth trying to get this stuff off. It was so difficult. What I realized is I could not remove the tar by myself. All I could do is move it around, transfer it around. I needed something else, something outside of me to transfer the tar onto. This is what Jesus is offering us. Going, you know, look, you think you've got a sin problem and you're just gonna move it around and you can solve it. You can't solve your problems. You, you, you can't do it. But Jesus comes in and says, I'll take it from you. You, you. you give me the tar. You give me the sin. I'll put it on myself. I'll absorb it. I will do what you cannot do. I, I will take it and, and get rid of it for all time. It's a different kind of salvation. But it's so easy not to understand, to go, oh yeah, just, just solve my problems for me, Jesus. Just, this, I got this at work and I got this with my family. And I just need deliverance from that. Jesus is going, no, no, you, you have something much deeper. And he's redefining what salvation looks like. You cannot remove the sin in your life. And so the question for us then becomes the very same question that those in the original Exodus had to wrestle with. What have you done with the blood? That was a defining question for them, whether or not their household would be spared or not. It's the same question for us today. What have you done with the blood? This is core of what it means to be a Christian, is how we respond to the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this is so significant that what you may not realize is the early church was known for this. They were known for this Last Supper, of this being a defining element of their community. So much so that other people misunderstood what they were doing and and said that this is a cannibalistic cult. Because they heard, oh yeah, they, they, they eat people's bodies and they drink their blood, and they didn't understand what they were saying. And so the early church was known as being a cannibalistic cult because of how much this blood defined them. And again, we can go, that's weird. I, don't, I wouldn't have done it like that. This is how God decided to do it. And when you understand the significance, you understand how we got here, it begins to make more sense. And so you get to the New Testament, Hebrews 9, 12 says it like this. Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. That's, that's Exodus stuff. That's Old Testament, that's the way it used to be. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. See, Jesus is the first one that says, I don't need anyone else's blood. I don't need to go kill a goat to kill a sheep. I have my own blood that will be poured out for everyone. And it is this blood that defines us today. It is this blood that marks whether or not you can call yourself a Christian. You wanna live by, the, by what it really means? It, it's to be a person marked by the blood. That that blood is what's over your house. That blood is what defines you. Not you solving your problems, you figuring everything out going, I am relying on him, on what he has done for me at the cross. This is a daily refocusing that we cannot save ourselves, that we need someone else to do it. And so what we're going to do now, I'm going to close this in prayer, and then together we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to do what Jesus did. Now, again, understand that the reason why we celebrate communion is because Jesus hijacked Passover. And so now we celebrate what he did. We don't celebrate Passover as Christians. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, the the Last Supper. We celebrate what he did as he redirected all of this and said, you want to know what salvation looks like? It's about me getting the tar out of your life removing it off of you, doing what you could never do by yourself. And it's something that we celebrate generation after generation after generation. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we, we come to this time and we're like, all right, it's time to get quiet and get really serious and kind of go down to that depressed state. Uh, that's not actually the way the early church celebrated. It, it, it was to be a celebration, just like Passover was a celebration. They would celebrate, God delivered us, God showed up. Oh, It's amazing. And the early church did the same thing. We should be celebrating. Jesus showed up. Jesus gave us his blood. We can celebrate that. I love the way 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says it like this. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim that we will be marked not by our efforts, not by our solutions, not by our work, but by your blood. We are people marked by you, and it is worth celebrating. It is worth gathering together and going, God, you are so good. You have done for us what we could never do ourselves. You are not the solutions to your problem, but Jesus Christ is. So together, I'm going to pray, our archers to come forward. I invite you to celebrate communion together as a family, as we remember how Jesus hijacked Passover and explained, this is what I'm offering you now. And when you see that, it changes everything. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we are in awe of not only how you have changed the understanding of Passover, but how you change our understanding of what salvation looks like. It's not just this physical deliverance from the situation that we're in, and yet that's what we tend to ask for. It's something so much deeper, something holistically that affects every part of us. You're offering to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Would you break that pride in us that thinks we don't need this, that we're fine on our own and realize that that your blood is offering us something beautiful. And even this image might be a bit strange, might be a bit weird. And we realize, God, this is what you're offering us. This is the life you're inviting us into that when we are marked by this blood, we are marked by what you revealed to us on the cross, that you look like Jesus. It changes everything. May we as a community here and and gathered everywhere else. May we be known as people of your blood, marked by what you have done for us and not what we can do for ourselves. Give us eyes to see you in this way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.